Speaking on the subject, the law internalized, love for enemies, love for our enemies. You probably could see that that's where we were going even earlier in the service because of the companion passage we read in Luke's gospel. But this is the more complete account of the Sermon on the Mount. The series is called The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. The greatest sermon ever preached is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, preached very early in His ministry. We come to the sixth point, six out of six points in the body of Jesus' classic message. In a very real sense, the first five points were just a lead-up to this clincher about loving our enemies. Last Sunday, we considered that uh, command to, uh, from the lips of Jesus, resist, not evil. He was talking about don't retaliate in kind. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. And I closed the message, or one of the last things I said, was Jesus is going somewhere with this self-denying teaching. Well, today we know where He was going. We've come to the terminus in verse 44. And we're going to park there a while. Love your enemies. But it begins in verse 43. Jesus said in the familiar template for all of these six points, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully or spitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Verse 46, for if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute, do you greet your brethren only? What do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I find it very interesting that in verse 44, we encounter for the first time in Jesus' immortal sermon, the one word that summarizes everything in it. He waits to the last point, the sixth point of the sermon to tell us, talk about a cliffhanger. That's a cliffhanger, isn't it? And I think you know the word, love. He doesn't say that word before. Love your enemies. That's a very specific kind of love. It's an extraordinary love. It is agape love. It is a love of which God loves us. And it was the love that Jesus had for us because God was in Jesus as He hung on the cross, reconciling the world unto Himself, Paul tells us in Corinthians. Friends don't need to be reconciled. Enemies have to be reconciled. This is the love of Christ for His enemies. It is not only unrequited love, it's unnatural love. You know, it's easy to love somebody who loves you back, right? That's why Jesus gave verses 46 and 47 here. You've heard me say it, and you've heard it said before, any old dog will lick the hand that feeds it, right? 
Any old dog will do that. But to love someone who doesn't love us, who curses us, who hates us, who persecutes us and delights to persecute us, for us to love them like Jesus loved his enemies, Jesus is going to have to do something in our hearts. And so I hope that that's your prayer today, that he will. Because this is what makes Christianity extraordinary. If we don't have this kind of love, what do we have to offer anybody else who's not a Christian? This sixth command goes further than the fifth. That we talked about last week, as important as that is and unusual as it is, to bear evil passively, to not retaliate and give blow for blow, tit for tat. That's something really a person who's not saved can do. I think of wicked Haman in the court of King Ahasuerus of Persia. It's a story in the book of Esther. We don't have time to go back and tell it, but you know, Haman had erected the gallows for Mordecai, the Jew that he hated. He was an enemy. He looked upon this stubborn Jew as his enemy, but in a twist of providence that only God could have orchestrated, Haman had to be the one to run in front of Mordecai, who was riding on the king's horse with the king's crown on his head in the king's royal apparel. Haman had to be the one to say, this is the, what the king does for the one that he delights to honor. He hated every minute of it, but he could still do it. But he couldn't fulfill Matthew 5, 44. He couldn't love Mordecai. And, wick, and so wicked Haman was killed. This is so revolutionary. This is so counterintuitive that often I hear even good Christians trying to soften the impact of what Jesus was saying here. And maybe you've said this, I haven't been reading your emails. I have not been eavesdropping on your phone calls. But I have heard Christians say this. Even good Christians try to soften the impact by saying, well, you don't have to like someone, but you're commanded to love them and forgive them. Could I respectfully take issue with that this morning? You can't get around it here. Christ is talking about a sincere love. Agape love goes beyond phileo love, and phileo love is fondness for. So you're not going to have agape love unless you've got phileo love too. Without guile and without hating every minute of it, minute of it, we are to serve and we are to sacrifice for our enemies. Yes, we are to like them. Boy, it's getting real quiet. To sincerely and actively love one's enemies is a divine command. Yes, it seems sky high. It seems impossible. But God's commands are His enablements, amen? So let's look at it under three headings today, the, the order, and uh, then the execution, and then the result. The order, the execution of the order, and the result. 
the order, the command here, simply what Jesus said in verse 44, but I say unto you, love your enemies. This is not a suggestion. This is not a recommendation. This is an explicit command. If we fail to comply with this, we fail to obey it, we are guilty of insubordination to the master. Now, as Jesus does with each of these six things we've been talking about in the body of the sermon, he begins by correcting a wrong assumption. In verse 43, you have heard that it hath been said, and he corrects a perverted understanding of the Jews about this matter of loving their enemies, especially the Pharisees. And so he says, ye have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Where did he get that hate thine enemy part? Where did the Jews get that? They just got that out of thin air. That, you won't find that anywhere in the Old Testament. It's found nowhere in any manuscript of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Jews just invented this flip side of the teaching to the law, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, and they came up with thou shalt hate thine enemy. You see what their problem was? They interpreted the word neighbor to mean only a fellow Israelite. So they taught the Jews to love the Jews. Everyone else from among the Gentiles was the goyim, the, the dogs aliens. That's why Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. It was an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? It was an insincere question from this lawyer that came to Jesus, much like the rich young ruler, and said, what thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus quoted the first great commandment, and then the second, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, this man said, well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus gave him the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan was regarded as an enemy of the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side and refused to help one of their own who was robbed and left half dead. But the good Samaritan ministered to him, came back and checked on him. What was Jesus doing? He was clearly redefining neighbor from what the Jews thought it was. The word neighbor includes enemies. Now, there's an underlying assumption here, and there's something we need to be correct some misapprehension here. If we are true to God in His Word, we will have our enemies. Did you hear that? We will have our enemies. We're to love them, but we'll have them. Jesus said that the world will hate us just like it hated Him. I don't know how many funerals I've gone to where there have been eulogies. Someone has gotten up and said to the effect concerning the deceased that they didn't have an enemy in the world. I'm sorry. That's not a compliment, folks. I sincerely hope that that assessment is due to ignorance. Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. So Jesus, first of all, corrects the perverted understanding of the Pharisees. There's no phrase in the Old Testament that says, hate thou shalt hate thine enemy. Then he corroborates the Old Testament, the true meaning of the Old Testament. If nowhere in the Old Testament it says, hate thine enemy, but the Pharisees just projected their perverted notions onto the Bible, then the Old Testament must have taught the same thing that Jesus did about this. Love your enemy, period. And you know what? It does. 
The Old Testament does teach it, both in precept and example. And we, we seldom hear this. We, hear, we, we emphasize the contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's not emphasize the differences. Let's emphasize the continuity, the similarities, the reinforcement. It's all one book, folks. It's all one book. Notice the precepts. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 23? Maybe you've read this verse, but you just haven't thought of it in this light or haven't read it in a long time. Way back in the, in the law here, the ordinances, we read these words, Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Exodus, not Deuteronomy, Exodus chapter 23 and verse 4. This is the law. If thou meet thine enemy's ox, his cow, or his ass, his donkey going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass, the donkey of him that hateth thee lying under his burden, and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. That's Old Testament, folks. But it sounds like New Testament, doesn't it? There is no spirit of vindictiveness in the Old Testament. Contrary to the perverted notions of many, the God of the Old Testament is not a tyrant. He's not a dirty bully. He's the same God of love and mercy that we find revealed through Christ in the New Testament. And all God's people said. So we see the same teaching by precept in the Old Testament, what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44. We also see it by examples. I don't know if you've thought of this. Again, it, let's look at the similarities. Let's not emphasize the discontinuity, but the continuity. Just very quickly, I think of David. David's attitude towards Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel, who got jealous of David, tried to kill him, threw a javelin at him, hoped to pin him to the wall, hunted his life like a partridge on the mountains from cave to cave and mountain to mountain. David had to take his life in his own hand. But all bitterness and all revenge were wholly taken away from the heart of David toward the one who tried to kill him and was insanely jealous of him, so that he actually, when he heard of the death of Saul, along with Jonathan, his son, he mourned their deaths. And the young Amalekite who thought he was going to get rewarded by David for informing him that he had finished off King Saul, David had him killed. That's the grace of God, folks. I think of Job. He showed no spite whatsoever toward his three friends, right? Bildad the Shuhite, Eliphaz the Temanite, Zophar the Naamathite. Those ites were pretty bad back then. I mean, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Oh, how they added to Job's suffering. But he was willing at God's command to pray for them. And then the Lord restored Job's losses. He restored his captivity when he was willing to pray for his three friends. And when Job prayed, he didn't ask that these three friends would experience the same sickness and losses he'd experienced. No, there was no spirit of vindication. So this matter of loving your enemies is not just novel to the New Testament. But before I leave that point, I do need to talk about some seeming contradictions in the Old Testament. 
And I could spend a whole series of lessons on this because some people get hung up, hung up on it. Nowhere in the Old Testament are we, do we find that, that phrase, we are to hate our enemy, but there are some statements that could be well interpreted to encourage people to hate an enemy. Let's talk about two instances here. There are others, but for the sake of time, we'll give two. What about God's command to Israel to exterminate entire nations and people? Like the Canaanites, like the Amalekites. If you can turn there quickly, turn to Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, uh, Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33. And look at verse 52. This is one such place where God tells Israel to to kill a bunch of people. In verse 52 of of, uh, Numbers chapter 33, then shall ye drive out, speaking of the Canaanites, the, the, the verse before, when you go over into the land of Canaan, then shall you drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their pictures, destroy all their molten images, and quite pluck down all their high places. Verse 55, but if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your side shall vex you in the land uh, wherein ye dwell. And in, according to Deuteronomy 7 verse 2, they were to utterly destroy them. Men, women, Children. Some people have a hard time with that. Was God being vindictive? Was God teaching Israel to be vindictive toward their enemies? No. And many things could be said here, and much has been written that would be worth your reading. But for the sake of time, suffice it to say just now, that the Canaanites had been notoriously wicked for generations. They engaged in acts that would be even today considered criminal, infant sacrifices, ritual prostitution. God gave them hundreds of years space to repent and then singled them out for divine judgment. This wasn't Israel's idea, this was God's. By the way, the same judgment repeatedly fell on Israel itself, God's chosen people in both Testaments, because of the same atrocities. So this was not just a matter of Israel's venting their hatred on their earthly enemy. This is forensic. This is judgment, the judgment of God. Then we have another matter to deal with that maybe you've thought about, maybe you haven't. And that is the so-called imprecatory psalms. These are the psalms that have curses called down upon people. A number of them. Inspired Scripture. Let me just give you an example, a sample of it, just for the sake of time. Psalm 69, 23 through 25. These words we find, let their eyes be darkened that they see not, make their loins continue to shake, pour out your indignation upon them, let your wrathful anger take hold of them, let their habitation be desolate, let none dwell in their tents. And many other such similar passages. 
How are, we under, how are we to understand such statements in light of Christ's teaching here that we're talking about today? Love your enemies. Maybe you've wrestled with this. Maybe you've thought about it. Maybe you haven't. There are a number of considerations that could be said about these psalms and statements. They are inspired of God. And we are to look upon them as God's pronounced judgments upon men and people, not some personal beef of an individual. This is further substantiated when we come to the New Testament, and we see Jesus Christ, the same one who says, love your enemies here, to the disciples, but He decrees woes, curses on the Pharisees. You can't get around it. He did. They were curses. When He said, woe, Hypocrites, serpents, those were curses. Please understand, the Bible does not teach universalism. The Bible does not teach the idea that everybody's going to heaven because God is love. If you have that notion about God, you have a perverted notion of God. No, God is a God of judgment as well as a God of mercy. Someday all the wicked will be cast into hell, all the nations that forget God. But until then, please understand, there is such a thing as what the theologians call the common grace of God. Thank God for the grace we sang about, the grace manifested upon people in salvation. But there's other kinds of grace. There's grace that leads up to salvation. The common grace of God. That's what Jesus referred to here when He talked about the fact that God sends the rain and the sun on the, the sunshine on the evil and on the good, on the just and on, and on the unjust. He shows His goodness and long-suffering thereby. Why? Romans 2 verse 4, it is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. There's just a whole lot of mamby-pamby weak, soft notions about God. Yes, God is showing love to His enemies right now, and so should we. But one day that's going to change. We could say so much more, but suffice to finish with that. That's the order, love your enemies, found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Secondly, there's the execution orders, those of you who have been in the military, they're meant to be executed, to be carried out. <clears throat> if we are ordered by the master to love our enemies, what does that look like? How does this love act out? Jesus does not leave us in, with any doubt. He doesn't just issue a, a seemingly impossible sky-high demand and then wait to see if we carry it out so He can judge us. He doesn't leave us in any doubt. He goes on to say in verse 44, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, and many translations would say abuse you and spitefully you treat you. There is no provision here, no allowance whatsoever for our hating others. This is in sharp contrast, of course to the perverted teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Those introductory words to, to verse 44 still apply 
to the, the finishing phrases of the verse when Jesus said, but I say unto you. This is under his authority. We, under his authority, we are to bless those who curse him. Again, I say it's so easy to say, oh, I love him, I just don't like him. Well, how can you feel that way if you genuinely desire God to bless that person? The word of the Greek for bless here is the same word from which we get eulogize. That makes us think about a funeral again. I'm not trying to be morbid today. I've mentioned funeral twice. You know what happens at funerals when people get eulogized. When there's a eulogy, they speak well of the person. I mean, the deceased may have been a jerk, but you're only going to hear praise at a funeral. Eulogies. Let's face it, this is not easy or natural to do. When somebody curses us, when they smear our name or somebody near and dear to us, when they curse us before others, When they say harsh, untrue, unkind, unnecessary words about us. But Jesus said, do not reply in kind. Do not defend yourself. Do not retaliate. Only return blessing for cursing. Am I misrepresenting it, folks, or is that what Jesus is saying? So I ask you, How in the world can we do that? It doesn't come natural. We all bristle with other feelings. I'll tell you how you can. I hope you remember this. We can bless those who curse us if, are you listening? We realize that their curse cannot hurt us. How can men curse when God has blessed? Remember Shimei in the Old Testament, the time of King David, when David was running in disgrace from his own rebel son Absalom, who had stolen the hearts of the people and was usurping the place of David as king. David had to run from the palace, the great king running from the palace in shame. And along the way, this wicked man by the name of Shimei, who's considered to be a a man of Belial, he curses at the king. That was easy to do. The tide of public opinion had turned against him. He throws stones at him. And one of David's mighty men, who happened to be one of his nephews, Abishai, said, Who is this dead dog? To do that, to curse the king. Let me go over and I'll take off his head. And he was mad enough to do it. But David said no. And then he said this. Let him curse. It may be that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. And I don't know about you folks. But I would rather have God's blessing than the mere absence of man's cursing any day. The curse can't hurt us if God is blessed. 
But he didn't just say, bless them that curse you. He said, do good to them that hate you. In this second way to carry it out, to execute this command, Jesus seeks to have us demonstrate true love for our enemies by doing good, being kind to them that hate us. Words of blessing are not enough. Talk is cheap. We must act as if our enemy were our best friend in need. That's why Paul said what he said, picking up on this in in, uh, uh, Romans 12, verse 20. Please jot that reference down. I think it's on the outline there. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, what are we to do? Feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap what? Coals of fire upon his head. A lot of confusion over where that came from. But in all likelihood, it's an Egyptian figure of speech for feeling burning guilt and shame. Coals of fire. We're to give our enemy drink when he's thirsty. We're to give him food when he's hungry. We're to treat him as our best friend in need. By the way, isn't that the way God treats us, though by by nature we are at enmity with him? That's why Jesus said he sends the rain, he sends the sunshine upon the unjust as well as the just. He returns benevolent actions for cruel ones. We've talked about this already. This is a common grace that God gives. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. He wants His unrequited goodness to lead men to repentance. So we can afford to do that too. Think about your enemy this way, or the one who opposes you. Doesn't your enemy stand in the greatest need of your kindness and benevolence? Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. In what context could that possibly be true in a more pronounced way than in returning good for evil to those who hate us? This is tough, folks, but this is what Jesus said. And he's not done. It gets more intense. Not only bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, but pray for them which abuse you literally and treat you spitefully, persecute you. Please note that just because we are do-gooders to our enemies does not make us immune to their abuse. Sometimes your enemy will take your kindness to just further insult and impugn your motives. We got to be ready for that. Sometimes they'll put the worst construction on our good, and by them our Good will be evil spoken of. What then? All right, here it is. The next step, the highest step, are you listening, is to pray for them. You know why? If they have iniquity in their hearts, they can't be heard. They cannot pray for themselves. So we have to pray for them.
Even Abraham, when he had just lied about his wife and was at his weakest spiritually, he had to pray so that the women of the heathen Abimelech, their wombs would be opened. We're the key, folks, our prayers. And it won't be hard to do that if we remember that we were once enemies of Christ ourselves, but we were conquered by His love. And so freely we have received, we can afford to freely give. Well, let's get more specific in applying this. What about our political enemies? Most of us have some pretty strong conservative traditional convictions. I do too. So what about the pro-abortion, pro-LGBTQ+, the one-world government elite crowd that is so often in power? What about them? I'm glad you asked. Would you take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2? 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul gives some verses here. Sometimes we don't read far enough and we don't do the connection. I want to make a connection that I hope will be a telling one today. Look at verse 1. As he talks to his son in the faith, he writes him here and he says, I exhort, I encourage therefore that first of all, this is the top priority. This is not down the line. First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Isn't it interesting? He didn't say, I pray first, I exhort first of all that protest marches, boycotts, threats. He didn't say that. He said, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings. Who was Caesar at this time? Nero. You can't get much more wicked than that. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty and dignity. Don't stop. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Verse 4, who will have all men to be saved. Does that include those kings and those that are in authority that are pro-LGBTQ and pro-abortion and one-world government elites? Yeah. That includes the abortion crowd the socialists, the feminists, the secular humanists, those who are soft on crime but hard on Christians. Pray for their salvation. Have we forgotten what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? Arguably the worst despot and butcher of history. I mean, this guy was barbaric awful. But according to Daniel chapter 4 verses 34 through 37, God humbled him. He was driven from among men. He had to leave his throne. He ate straw like an ox. And finally his reason returned to him. His great men sought him out. He was reinstated on the throne. And oh, what a different tone he had. 
as he glorified the one true God of heaven who had abased him. I may be wrong, but I think we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. If God could save Nebuchadnezzar, he can save anybody. Well, you say, what about those who claim to be Christians, but they still oppose us in some ways? They see things so differently. And they may even go public with their criticism and opposition and pretty hard stuff. Okay, let's talk about that. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 14, verse 4? Far from judging our brother, far from esteeming him to be an enemy or even a wicked compromiser. We have a whole lot of that going on, fundamentalism, back and forth. You wicked compromiser, you, you wicked compromiser. Far from doing that, we should pray, according to this verse, to the God, are you listening, who is able to make him stand. And when you're tempted to think harsh thoughts about another brother and sister in Christ who takes a different position than you do on some things, I ask you to read that verse and then examine your own heart and say this, is that what I desire? Do I want to see him or her stand or fall so that it will make me look good? That's where we live, folks. The power of forgiveness the power of love, loving those who abuse us. We all know when we've been touched by stories like that of Corey Tin Boom, we had a play, The Hiding Place, done here a few years ago. What a blessing. Forgiveness toward the Nazis that had killed her sister. Less than a year ago, the movie Sabina came out, story of Richard Wormbrand's wife, Sabina, similar, able to forgive Nazi killers and show them the love of Christ. This is what God uses to break people down and show them the reality of Christianity. In 2010, I shared the story. I haven't said much about it lately. But the son of one of the founders of Hamas, the terrorist organization, in Israel. His name was Mossab Hassan Yosef. He had secretly started studying the Bible with a group from Canada who came and actually held Bible studies in his father's house, one of the co-founders of Hamas. Unbelievable. And he came to see Matthew 5.44 and he couldn't believe what he was reading. Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. And it just tore him up. He was utterly undone by that. He left Islam. He had served a prison term for killing Israelis. He quit killing Israelis. He sought asylum in the United States. He came out public, wrote a book, The Son of Hamas. He embraced Jesus because of the reality of Matthew 5, 44.
But I want you to see the result. Not only the order, the execution, but the result. If we embrace Christ's revolutionary counterintuitive words here, what can we expect? Someone is quick to say, well, God doesn't just expect me to be a doormat, does he? I don't know how many times I've heard that. Does God just expect me to be made irrelevant and forgotten on the ash heap of history? Don't set up a straw man like that. Here's the threefold glorious result if we're willing to take Christ's words literally and put them into practice. First of all, we will resemble our heavenly Father. Verse 45, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. The word children, maybe in your translation, it's translated sons. But there are two different words that are often translated sons in the Greek New Testament. One of them, and probably the one that is most common, is the word technon, which means born ones. It speaks of those who are children of God, sons by virtue of the new birth. Like John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them God gave the power, the right, the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's technon, born ones. That's not the word here. That ye may be the children of your heavenly Father. We don't become children of God. We don't get born into God's family because we carry out Matthew 5.44. The word here is huios which shows kinship. It shows a resemblance to the Father. Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Bless them which persecute you, that you may resemble your Father. My oldest son, Chad, is here today. Poor guy. He's bald and I still have a head of hair. But even if he dropped the last name that he has, and I hope he never wants to, people are going to say, we know who your dad is. <laughs> he talks like me. He smiles like me. He's got that expression in his face. He would be forever branded as the son of Bob Vradenberg. Do we want to be branded as the son of God? a son of God. Let's love our enemies. There's no explanation for that except God is in that person. What else can we expect as a result to overcome evil with good? Jesus kind of cuts to the chase here in verses 46 and 47. I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time. He says, if you just love those who love you back, if you just say hello only to your brothers, what is commendable, what is praiseworthy about that? Don't even the tax collectors and the heathen do as much? How are you any different? What do you more than others? It's exactly the intent there. Are you listening? True Christianity goes beyond that. It's extraordinary. It causes us to be a peculiar people. We feel a common bond and indebtedness to all humanity to show them love for Jesus' sake. And so when we have the opportunity, we do good to all men. Yes, especially to those who are of the household of faith. But we do good to all men. We don't stop to ask, uh, which party do you belong to? 
We give food to the hungry. We give water to our thirsty adversary. We trust God in so doing to overcome evil with good. Why? Because that's what Jesus would do, and that's what he commands us to do. The last thing is this, perfecting love. The very last verse belongs here. Verse 48, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Well, since no one can be absolutely perfect in this life, there are those who kind of water down the meaning and say, well, shouldn't we take that word perfect to mean mature? Uh Uh-uh. Is Jesus just telling us to be well-rounded Christians here? I don't think so. He wants us to be like Him. Perfect. Holy. And that's what we should aim at every day. The Holy Spirit indwells us for that purpose. There's a skeptical world out there that doesn't believe anybody's like that. They need to see that. The apostle of love, John, said this in 1 John 4, verse 12, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, like Jesus said, God dwelleth in us. And His love is perfected in us. The closest we will ever come to God-like perfection in this life is if and when we heartily love our enemies. That's the closest we'll come. Our prayer ought to be, dear Father, give me this love. Give me a heart like thine. I can't do it on my own. Shall we pray? Father, we can't do this on our own. We can't just grit our teeth and by sheer determination say, I'm going to love my enemy. Help us to appropriate your grace, Lord. To love those who hate us and, yes, who hate you. And overcome evil with good. Oh, we pray that more lost sinners who seem, who would be voted the most unlikely to ever get saved, people like Masab Hassan Yosef, will come to know Jesus because they see him in us. The one who hung from the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Help us. We can't do it without that help. In Jesus' name, amen.